This is the remix. Rob, that's left here in the Superdome, hoping for it. Stidham, snap, out of the backfield. They're Abdullah. Tracked down, inbounds from behind by Warner. The clock will tick down. That'll do it. And that'll do it. For the first time in 124 games, the Raiders are shut out. They come to New Orleans with a great offense, and instead, it's the Saints defense that holds them to 181 yards. Boom. Sadness. That's You're the one. sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Started off the show with our first bite asking if the Raiders are rebuilding since Dave Ziegler says they're uh, evaluating year one, uh, want to figure out what fits for the future. Uh, Mike on Twitter said they don't know how to rebuild. That's why this team has been where it is for the last 20 years. Probably the most accurate representation of the Raiders yeah, exactly. for two good decades job, Mike. Now. They have not done a very good job of rebuilding. John Gruden took over and did genuinely try to rebuild, right? Traded mm-hmm. away Khalil Mack, traded away Mark Cooper, got a ton of first-round picks, and they blew pretty much all of them, right? None of those first-round picks, maybe Josh Tried Jacobs, and failed. Right, has worked out, but none of those first-round picks have worked out. Hell, one of them's not even on the team anymore, and he was the one that was most recently taken. Right. And Alex Leatherwood. So that has been... A big problem for the Raiders is it's not that they haven't tried to rebuild a few times. It's that they have failed in their efforts to rebuild and haven't acquired the quality talent on cheap deals that you need to win in the NFL and that you should get when you actually try to undergo a rebuild. Um, But I do want to talk about the Washington Commanders. So yesterday during the show, the uh, Daniel Snyder announced that he was looking into selling the team that he's hired bank of America to help him sell the Washington commanders a couple hours in later into the day ESPN broke a story that the commanders are under federal investigation. <laughs> the U S attorney's office in Eastern in the Eastern district of Virginia has opened a criminal investigation into allegations. The Washington commanders engaged in financial improprieties. Uh, this stems from the uh, house of representatives investigation. The House committee said in its letter to the FTC that it found evidence of deceptive business practices over the span of more than a decade, including withholding ticket revenue from visiting teams and refundable deposits from fans. The committee outlined the testimony of former employees and access to emails and documents, a pattern of financial impropriety by owner Dan Snyder and team executives. At one point in 2016, the team retained up to $5 million dollars from 2,000 season ticket holders while also concealing shareable revenue from the league. So you've got... We know why he's selling. You've got um, not giving the NFL their revenue-sharing money from tickets. Right. And not giving back money to to season ticket holders for refundable deposits. Now we know. So here's the other interesting part on this. ESPN months ago reported both of these things. And Dan Snyder called it a lie. Hell, what from was his it? yacht two weeks ago, Dan Snyder called, told the other NFL owners it was a lie. Mm-hmm. Right when Jim Irsay went on his, uh, we got to get rid of him. Dan Snyder in their NFL owner meetings reportedly told all the other owners, "Hey, what ESPN reporting is a lie. None of that financial stuff actually happened. Now, all of that is a lie." And now we know the House Committee says that they have evidence of it, and that they are un- that the Commanders are under criminal investigation for effectively withholding money from different groups of people and the league that they are in. 
So, do we believe this is what led Dan Snyder to sell the team? I think it's I think it's a big reason why it's, he's he's decided to sell the team, and he suddenly changed his mind. My main question yesterday was what caused him to change his mind because he's been adamant about keeping not the selling the team. Right? He's this isn't the first time he's been under pressure to right. sell the Washington Commanders, and he's been adamant every time. And he's and not going to do it. Suddenly, he changed his mind. This would seem to be why. Um, the part that I guess I don't know enough about when it comes to selling a team when you're under criminal investigation. <laughs> just that, just that <laughs> sentence as you throw it in there. Uh, does does it hurt the value of the team? Does it decrease the amount of money he well, Dan it, Snyder would it, get when he sells the team? It creates a lot more questions. Yeah, I'll tell you what. If I'm if they're want five billion, I'm I'm probably headed to the FTC or you know the district attorney's office and and the U.S. attorney's office and saying how is this going to affect what's happening with this franchise before I pay five billion dollars? So it. like so hypothetical Dan Snyder sold, sells the team today for five sale, billion. sale goes through sale is final are the commanders under a criminal investigation still or is just Dan Snyder under a criminal I investigation think it'd be the commanders I would say it's probably Snyder just him alone I would say so yeah I mean if there's I mean, if I there's think... evidence that he gave orders to to keep this money instead of giving it out then he's the investigated person but if somebody else did it and he just knows about it, then he's just a party to it. Because that's that's the part when it comes to you know buying the team that would make a big difference. Because if you if you buy the Commanders, and it's a case where oh the team is still going to be under criminal investigation, the team could still face some sort of punishment. I don't know what that would be, but that would decrease the value if it's simply. The guy Dan, who sold you the team. Dan Snyder's in trouble, and once he sells the team, the commanders are fine. What, may, maybe there's other employees that get fired or whatever because of this, but if it's just, hey, on an individual level, then it probably shouldn't decrease the value of the team. Uh, but if there's something that could happen to the team because of this, once you buy it, then obviously yeah, that you, decreases You need it. to know these kind of things before right. you spend $5 billion or what it's, whatever it's valued at. It's, you have down here... Valued at $5.6 billion. I'm not yeah. spending that much money if I think we're under investigation. How many people can who, afford the NFL team? Probably more than we guess. Probably really? more than we think. There's a lot of people with a lot of money in this with world. With $5.6 billion? Because it's one... Okay, here's the key, though. You have to have $5.6 billion. You get to pay in installment plans, but you have to have $5.6 billion. A lot of times when you like look up somebody's net worth, it includes houses they own, cars they own, right? All their assets, yachts they own, yeah, whatever it assets. is. It's not they don't have that much money on hand, ready to go. It includes investments or whatever. So I, I'm I'm curious, like, what's the number of people that can basically get 5.6 billion dollars? And the other part of this that we see uh, regularly when teams get bought and sold, you go get a loan from the bank. How many people? And don't can, you have so many investors with you? You, yes, yes. It's not going to be one guy. But it's not going to be one person. Are there, how many people are there that can get a $5 billion loan from a bank? Because obviously nobody's loaning us $5 billion, or we'd go buy the Washington Commanders. Yes. Uh, and or the station. Right. And then, Well, no, we'd buy the Commanders, <laughs> and then we'd sell it in two years for $7 billion, and we'd be good to go. <laughs> we'd be perfect. Um, but that, that's the part I'm always curious about. Because listen, we just talked about earlier this week the uh, Wes Edens and Major League Soccer in Las Vegas. Yeah. And the report from the San Diego Union Tribune about 
it's stalled here in Vegas because Wes Edens is balking at paying higher construction costs and what was it? Interest rates have risen for the stadium. So the stadium is going to cost more money to right. build than whatever he originally planned for. Wes Edens apparently has a lot of money. He owns the Milwaukee Bucks. He owns Aston Villa in uh, the Premier League in England. And he's balking at, oh, I don't know if I can spend that much money. I don't know how much more it is, but he's balking at building a stadium. Stadium's not going to cost $5.6 billion. So I'm I'm no. very curious as to what the actual number of people, and obviously it'd be in a group, but even groups of people that can come together with $5.6 billion to buy an NFL team. Um, according to a Forbes article from earlier this year, uh, the top 100 people in the world are worth $10 billion or more. Okay. I'm sorry, the top 200 people. Okay. What percentage are interested money. in Well, that's the, the other thing. I mean, of those people who wants to buy an NFL team. As the Saudi Probably. Arabian government that owns the Live Tour going to buy the commanders? Mickelson's buying the team. <laughs> no, I. that's the best question you ask. I mean, you could have 200 people worth $10 billion, but maybe one wants to own an NFL team. Right. So post. i curious to see who buys it because it's an NFL team for sale. It doesn't happen that often. And it's uh, an NFL team where basically their entire fan base is going to like you no matter what, simply because you're not. Oh, Dan since Snyder. you're not Dan Snyder. <laughs> That's the one good thing about buying this team. You're going to be very popular with the fan base, right? I mean, they're going to, they're going to absolutely love you just because you're not him. Well, I can say, hey, I am not Dan Snyder. I am not under criminal that investigation. That should be your op- opening statement at the press conference. Yes. I don't know era. if we're going to win, but I'm not Dan Snyder. It's a new era. Um, one other NFL thing I did want to talk about. Uh, Tua gave this quote yesterday. I think throughout OTAs and throughout training camp, we could see the potential that we had as a team, offensively and defensively. We're not afraid to talk about Super Bowls here. We're not afraid to talk about going to a playoff game, having the opportunity to go to one, and then hopefully winning one. I would say I have full belief that we are capable of winning a Super Bowl. How uh, many quarterbacks in the NFL right now would give the quote, we're not afraid to talk about Super Bowls here? I mean, if they were asked about it, wouldn't most of them? Isn't that the goal? I mean, if isn't you that ask, the goal of a, if, if you ask a, if you ask a player, what's your ultimate goal in this league? If you ask Derek Carr right now, what's your ultimate goal? He's going to say, win the Super Bowl. I think 90% of quarterbacks are going to say, we're taking it one game at a time or some variation of that. I think, I think Derek Carr right now would say, we're looking at Jacksonville. Now, granted, Derek Carr's two and five, so a little bit different from where Miami is. But was he asked, was he asked that? I or was do he not asked know the about, specific question. That is a good do point. Do you think you can win the Super Bowl? Right. I do not know the specific question. But I do, I do think either way, if you said, hey, can you win the Super Bowl? I think most quarterbacks would say we're taking this one game at a time. We on gotta, to New Orleans? We got to focus on Jacksonville. We got to focus on whoever we're playing this week. I just think most of them would say something to that effect. Not many quarterbacks, even ones that have won the Super Bowl before, I don't think are coming out saying, yeah, okay. we're not afraid to talk about Super I mean, I, I'd like to know what the question was. Like, what's your ultimate goal this season? Yeah. You know, and kind of make it a broader sense on the question. I don't know what the question was. If the, if, if he said, if the question was, what are your goals? Then I could definitely see them because we hear it all the time. I, I heard it uh, uh, when they started this streak of five games. I tried to get some of them in the locker room to talk about, hey, this is an opportunity. Hunter Renfro kind of went there. He said, hey, everyone wants to win games in a row. And then he goes, but we're focused on New Orleans. Yeah. No, Darren Waller, but we're focused, we're focused well. on our next practice. Uh, I think if you change position groups and went to wide receivers, most wide receivers would say, you're damn right. We're talking about the Super Bowl. <laughs> I think if you just change positions, you get different answers. But I thought, so we did talk about this yesterday when they got Bradley Chubb and where they sit in the AFC. 
probably is not as good as Buffalo and Kansas City still, which means their path is very difficult. Is difficult, but I think they've I mean, got they'd a have chance. To go maybe three games on the road, right? Most likely three games on the road to yeah, get to the Super Bowl. But I think this team is good, and the key, because the I will I will nitpick out one thing here. Tua said we're not afraid to talk about Super Bowls, plural. I think the key here is that if you're Miami, if you're the Dolphins right now, you're probably going to be good this year. Making the Super Bowl is going to be tough. But I think if you're Miami, you're looking at this and saying, all right, this year's team is pretty solid. Next year, we're winning the AFC East. And we're going to have a legitimate chance to win the division and therefore, and then therefore get home the games Bowl and go to the Super Bowl for multiple years to come. Because this team, they've got two under contract right now. Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddle under contract for a few more years. They just gave, they traded for Bradley Chubb and just gave him a big new deal. Like they've got good players locked up for a while. And I believe in Mike McDaniel. And if everybody else, if you do believe in Mike McDaniel, did they already extend Chubb? Yeah, they they, they sent him this so morning. So right away they did it. Yeah, yeah, they traded for him, and then within whatever forty eight hours or something, he's, he's he got a new deal. Um, if you believe in Mike McDaniel, this team's winning the Super Bowl. Right. I mean, they've got good enough pieces in place. And if Mike McDaniel can do this, that that's what the Dolphins should be believing. So I think part of Tua's quote is not just about this year. I think part of it is about looking to the future and how good this team could be in the next couple of years. All right. Coming up next, it's Bischoff's Briefs. Bischoff's Briefs. I wanted you to see these player evaluations that you asked me to do. Bischoff's Briefs. I asked you to do three. Yeah. Bischoff's Briefs. To evaluate three players. Yeah. How many did you do? Bischoff's Briefs. 47. Okay. Actually, 51. I don't know why I lied just then. UNLV basketball season starts on Monday. Matt Norlander of CBS Sports. He ranks the top 101 teams in the country. And UNLV came in at 101. Uh, But what he wrote about UNLV is what I thought was interesting. My final team is one that won't have to rely on youngins in order to win. At the Mountain West level, that's a wise approach. Kevin Kruger's second season should see the running Rebels finish better than 10 and 8 in the league, led by fifth year point guard Jordan McCabe. Kruger lost 20 point scorer Bryce Hamilton, but that but offset that by bringing in five down transfers from power conference schools, which might be an elixir to lift UNLV into the top 4 in a flavorful Mountain West Conference. So there are a couple of things from that that I find interesting. Uh, the first one being that he says they're going to be led by Jordan McCabe. You if, don't even want Jordan McCabe in the rotation. If we are talking about Jordan McCabe leading UNLV, I do not believe they are going to be very good this season. I don't think that's even possible if we're talking about Jordan McCabe leading this team. Now, maybe if he's like an emotional leader or something like that, sure. But this team is going to be need to be led by better players than Jordan McCabe for them to do anything at all. Um, The other part I found interesting was him saying the rebels 
uh, should see the Rebels finish better than 10 and 8 in the Mountain West. I'm looking through Mountain West history. 10 and 8. If you're better than 10 and 8, you are almost always a top four team in the conference. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes there's a good top heavy team. But like last year, UNLV was 10 and 8. That's the record he's referencing. They finished fifth. The fourth place team was Wyoming at 13 and 5. Right. So basically, he's saying they're going to be better than they were last year in the Mountain West. I have a really hard time believing that. Like, I guess it's possible, but I just have a hard time believing they lose Bryce Hamilton and Donovan Williams and Royce Ham. And Royce Ham, the leading rebounder. And that they're going to be better than they were last season, especially if they're led by Jordan McCabe. I just, I don't think that that's an accurate portrayal of where this team will be. And again, he has them ranked 101st. He doesn't have, like, it'd be one thing if he had them ranked like 50th. Then you'd be like, okay, you think they're going to be the 50th best team in the country. They're probably the second or third best team in the Mountain West. But at 101, I think he's got them as the fifth or sixth best team in the, in Mountain, West. the Mountain West, which is you're not finishing at like 12 and six if you're the fifth or sixth best team in the Mountain West. So that I thought was interesting. Now, something else on UNLV basketball. Uh, Bart Torvik, fun analytics sites for college basketball. I talked about this with you last year. They have a stat that's essentially uh, points above replacement, points above mm-hmm. average. Um, it's it's a little more complicated than that, but that's how I'm going to refer to it because that's a simpler way to do it. And to give you context, Bryce Hamilton last year, uh, I think he was second, maybe he was first in the Mountain West. He was five. So Bryce Hamilton was five points, points better the, yeah. than the average basketball player. And it's on a per-game basis. This is not a season-long. This is a per-game. So every game, Bryce Hamilton was giving UNLV five points better than an average player would. Here's the problem for UNLV. All of their Division I transfers, none of them are in the top 250 of transfers this offseason based on points above average. Jackie Johnson was the best last year at Duquesne at 1.6. EJ Harkless, 1.5. Luis Rodriguez, 1.1. Eli Parquet, 1. Isaiah Cottrell, 0.2. And Shane Noel, negative 0.2. And again, the context here, Bryce Hamilton was a 5 last year. Donovan Williams was 2.5 and Royce Ham was 1.8. All three of those guys are gone and none of the transfers they have coming in have had a season as good as any of those three, right? There is some reason for optimism. Donovan Williams, uh, his last season at Texas, his points above average, 0.0. And then he blew up to 2.5 last year. Royce Ham, his last year at Texas, 0.5. And then he blew up to 1.8. Even Jordan McCabe was a 0.1 at West Virginia. He was a 1.3 at UNLV last season. So transfers can make a big jump. You're getting more playing time. You have new roles, different roles, new systems, new coaches, all that. They can absolutely make a jump. But it also works the other way. Last year, uh, Mike Nugo was a 0.6 for UNLV. When he was at Kent State, he was a 4.4. He was excellent at Kent State. Fell off at UNLV. Victor Iwako. Uh, his last year at Oklahoma, 0.6. He fell to 0.4 at UNLV. Justin Webster at Hawaii was a 2.9. Last year, he was a 0.9 for UNLV. So players can absolutely get worse. There's no guarantee they get better. Also, this stat isn't by any means like the Bible of college basketball. Like It's not the only way to evaluate players. But if we're using this number to sort of compare the roster from last year to the roster from this year, UNLV lost their top three players, and those three combined to be 9.3 points above average. 
their top three players for this year's team based, based on, on last year's numbers would be 4.5. Based on the past. You're talking five points below average or below. Uh, what, no, five points below what they had last what year. What they had last year. And that's a that's a big deal, right? If you're scoring five, it's not just about scoring, but if you're getting five points less per game, that's a massive drop off for a team. Well, especially for a team, we don't know if they're going to score. Right. So what has to happen this year? UNLV needs not one. They need multiple guys to make the big jump like Donovan Williams did, right? They need multiple guys. They need Elijah Harkless to go from a 1.5 player to like a 3.8 a 4.2 type of player. They need Keyshawn Gilbert. He was under one last year. They need Keyshawn Gilbert three. to go and be a three, right? They need multiple guys to make that big jump. And the problem, and it's the same thing we said at the beginning of the offseason, and it's the same thing we said when they brought in players, once you get all that, you're back to where you were last year. Getting all of that gets you as good as you were last season. And last season's team, fifth in the Mountain West, 10, 10 and, eight. and 8 in conference, nowhere near the NCAA tournament. For this team to make the NCAA tournament, they need like five guys to make that jump. They need like five guys to go from... 0.5 to 2.5 and 1.5 to 4 and 0.5 to 3.2. Like they need five guys to make that type of jump to be better than they were last year. And I think that's unrealistic. I it's it's possible, but I think it's extremely unrealistic to count on five guys making that jump. Like Keyshawn Gilbert might have a great season and Luis Rodriguez, the transfer from Ole Miss. Those two might have great seasons that make a huge leap. But then Elijah Harkless and Elijah Parquet and Jordan McCabe don't really make any big leaps. And hey, you won nine Mountain West games. Or it could be Parquet and Harkless have massive jumps and Gil Gilbert and Luis Rodriguez don't. It's just hard to see four or five guys making that big of a stride this year because it's just it's just unlikely for that to happen. It's possible, but that's like the top 2% outcome on the season. For UNLV, most likely they'll get some of them to have a good year. Some of them have a average year. Some of them have a bad year and they're an average Mountain West team that doesn't make the NCAA tournament. So we're a few days away from the season starting and I'm not that optimistic about UNLV. It appears you're better. not. Uh, it appears though you do believe they'll win a lot of non-conference games. And their non-conference schedule not very good. Um, they should. They honestly should. Their defense should be good enough that they don't give up points. And right. they win a lot of, even if their offense struggles, they still win a lot of these games, even if it's 62 to 54. Right. 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 And you're like, uh, you should probably beat Southern by more than eight, but I right. still think they'll win a good chunk of them. I just, I think they're going to be a fine Mountain West team, right? I don't think we're talking about a bad conference team. They've got too, they've got too many players that they can't all fail, right? They've got enough guys that at least some of them are going to be good but I just don't think enough of them are going to be good to actually contend in this conference and ultimately go to the NCAA tournament. If they do hell of a job by Kevin Kruger. If this, if, if this coaching staff gets a whole bunch of new guys and they get three or four of them to make that jump and Keyshawn Gilbert makes the jump and all of a sudden they're, they're in the NCAA tournament. Incredible job by Kevin Kruger. I just think it's very unlikely coming up next. J.R. Starkis joins the show. Ready for the weekend. Let's find out what's on tap with J.R. Starkus. Champagne, perfume going in, sewage coming out. Director of Business Development, Southern Glaze Spirits Wine of Southern Glaze Spirits Wine Nevada. I got that, didn't I? Wine and Spirits. Wine and Spirits. Wine and spirits. Yeah, mixologist. <laughs> it's been eight years. 
Yeah, on Thursdays, every Thursday with us is J.R. Starkus. Follow him on Twitter at J.R. Starkus. Well, you've only been on here 17 straight years, so <laughs> might as well get the name right. Yeah. Hey, we're not, yeah, we're not paid uh, to talk around here. Yeah, exactly. Um, Next time I'm in the area, I'll drop off a card so you have the proper uh, <laughs> yeah, can you, well, title We're, we're trying to get you back in here so you can drop off some other stuff. <laughs> the okay. wife's wondering when yeah, you're going to drop some stuff off, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure she's been, uh, you know, she's been hurting for the booze lately. I mean, Come on. I feel bad for her. Yeah, a little vino, a little red. Come on, get back in here. Uh, did you watch the no-hitter? I did, I did. Uh, it was awesome to watch. You know, I think, you know, I, I'm always impressed kind of by, um, you know, uh, you know, combined no-hitters like that because, like, I, I can imagine as a pitcher, like, especially if you're the closer, right, when you come in last night, you, to a degree, you have to be like, you know, yeah, my job here is to win this game or to finish, close it out. It's 5-0. But, like, you think, like, I cannot give up a hit here. Right? You, you feel awful. I think you'd, you'd feel absolutely awful to give up a hit. And he was pitching so, like, to Schwarber. When he walked Schwarber, you, you could see that he's like, I'm not making a mistake to this guy. He can walk all day long. I'm not making a mistake to him. Um, but I, I find it fascinating to watch combined no-hitters like that. It's, it's got to be incredibly challenging. All right, I got an important question for you uh, because I have a friend who is a Phillies fan. And last night, I want to say in the seventh inning, he said at this point it would just be cool to see history. Red Sox are getting no hit in the World Series, and they're, it's 5 nothing, right? They don't have a legitimate chance to come back. Are you then cheering for history to see the no-hitter, or are you desperate for your team not to get no hit? No, I'm. I want to see somebody lay down a bunt to get on. That's what I want to see. I want to, yeah, you screw your unwritten rules. Like I want to see bunts uh, against the shift. You know, like because they were still shifting last night. I saw that too. I was like, yeah, they were. All right, well, that I would. I would be bunting against the shift, and I would wind your way on, and then and then you could uh, kiss my a money money if you know what I mean. So like, you know, when they tell you, oh, you're such a bad player, you you like. Defend the bunt. That's how I look at it. Oh, I 100% agree. And my friend was just trying to cope with an embarrassing loss by saying, oh, yeah. history, that'd be cool. He stopped watching, by the way, in the ninth inning, so he didn't even watch he's the end of He's a true it. Phillies fan, or he just wants the Phillies to win? No, no he's, a, he's the one I did the 999 hot dogs and beer challenge And he's a legit with. Phillies fan. He's a legitimate Phillies fan. He was, yeah, he, was, he was in Philadelphia over the weekend and had tickets to game three before it got rained out. And uh. he was flying back Tuesday morning, so he missed. He would have been at a World Series game, yeah. Wait, did you do the 999 challenge? Yes. How'd it oh, go? Oh, you went to some weird country and got swept yes. away by a hurricane. Um, and got sick. Yeah, yeah. I uh, drank, what What were my final numbers? Six. I drank six beers and ate four hot dogs. Was it five hot dogs? I can't remember. I didn't come anywhere close. Oh. Yeah. Meh. My friend drank nine beers and ate seven hot dogs. He got somewhat close. But somewhat. yeah, it was miserable. It was not a good. How did he feel the next day? Ah, uh, not good. Neither one of us felt yeah. good. But yeah, not well, I'd good. I imagine at all. all those hot dogs. Ooh. Yeah, not good at all. So yeah, I, I'm with you, Jr. I would be desperate for a hit. What, one of my favorite memories of the tanking Astros. You Darvish, when he was with the Rangers, had a no hitter into the ninth, and Marwin Gonzalez broke it up with two outs. They lost the game by like eight runs, but I was pumped because they broke up the no hitter <laughs> in the ninth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying, and I want to see it go down like that. I want to see their controversial. That's why I see a, a bunt, an intentional bunt, or something like that. Like, yeah, that's what I want to see. Like, you got to go down as hard as you can. Especially if it had been like Schwarber that bunts, because that guy, if he oh. makes contact, it goes 500 feet. If he dropped down a yeah. bunt, well, that'd be fun. Yeah, he had a few yeah, foul balls that they got they got close on. Every he foul ball he hits is, is the hardest like, is hit it, ball in the game. Yeah, he hit one <laughs> to the upper deck the other night that the guy caught it and probably thought, "How did I get one up here?" <laughs> Yeah, yeah he's hitting the ball well with us right now.
Yeah, well, not yesterday. So that's nice. Um, all right, what are you making for us today, Jr.? <laughs> so I'm going to do a cocktail. Uh, I want to do the, a cocktail called the Old Pal. Uh, the Old Pal, you know, there's, there's, you know, we've talked about it before. The the variations of of drinks that you know that bartenders make, and by swapping one ingredient out from the arsenal that you already have at your house, it becomes something completely different. Uh, for instance, you know, if you're making a margarita, which is tequila, lime, and uh, agave, right? If you switch the tequila to rum and switch the agave to a simple syrup, you now have a daiquiri, a lime daiquiri. Uh, not the blended one that a lot of people think of, a real actual daiquiri, right? You take that same drink and instead of fresh lime juice, you use chunks of lime and add cachaça, you have a drink called the caipirinha uh, from Brazil. And so just taking... Um, an ingredient swapping it out, it becomes something very different. So the same thing kind of happens here. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did a cocktail, the Negroni, right, which is gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth in equal parts. And then we did a Boulevardier cocktail, which is instead of gin, you putting in bourbon. It's bourbon, Campari, and sweet vermouth, which becomes a Boulevardier, another version of that drink. Well, the old pal is simply doing that again, right? So instead of, um, you know, equal parts, you can do equal parts in this drink. Uh, you're you're going to have the same three ingredients, except you're going to use rye whiskey, Campari and dry vermouth instead of sweet vermouth. And the drink is very easy. It's a stirred cocktail. The garnish on it, instead of an orange like it is in the Boulevardier or the Negroni, uh, is a lemon peel. Uh, so just a couple minor adjustments to the drink, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic cocktail that any kind of cocktail bar should know. So you're going to take one and a half ounces of rye whiskey. Um, you know, any rye whiskey will work for this drink. I chose Frey Ranch rye because it's, uh, it's the local element to it. Uh, Frey Ranch rye is a great 100-proof rye whiskey that you can find at any of your favorite liquor stores. It's, it, it's outstanding stuff. Um, but any rye whiskey will work. It doesn't really matter. Um, but you want something a little higher in proof. So Frey Ranch rye hits, hits the bill right away with 100 proof. Ounce and a half of that into a mixing glass. Follow that by three quarter ounces of Campari and then three quarter ounces of sweet, or excuse me, of dry vermouth. Uh, take all those ingredients, add ice and stir them strain it into a cocktail glass. I, you could do it over ice if you wanted to, but I prefer this drink um, uh, stirred in, in, a, in a cocktail glass. And then you garnish it with the oils and the peel of a fresh lemon. That's it. That's the Old Pal cocktail. It was created around the 1920s um, by the same bartender that created the Boulevardier uh, for, for a buddy of his that came into his bar that was the, uh, uh, funny enough, like a sports editor for the New York Times in Paris at the time. Wow. So, um, you know, so, so the new, it was the New York Herald in Paris is what it was, actually. The New York Herald from Paris. So Ed, he used to come to the bar and he made this drink. You could be inventing drinks, Ed. I could see an old-time sports writer, in, <coughs> excuse me, in a bar. Just uh, coming up with his own stuff? Yes. Yeah, that'd be yes. great. Uh, so, JR, what is your favorite drink that is just a one-ingredient alteration off of a popular drink? Um, I would say if my favorite drink, it's a one ingredient alteration. My favorite drink is the margarita. So I would say a daiquiri would be my, my, my favorite drink. That's a one change alteration. Right. That's a one change to a daiquiri? To, yeah. So, I mean, so a, a margarita, like I said, is, is tequila, lime, and, and sugar. In this case, the sugar that a lot of people use is agave, but you don't have to use agave nectar, right? But it's, it's sugar. The only change to make a daiquiri is instead of tequila, you're using rum. So it's rum, lime, and sugar. That's it. How often? Drink. How often would you say you drink a margarita? Um, it's it's man. 
It's my most often drink when I go to a bar if I'm drinking a cocktail that's not on the cocktail menu. Um, it is it is often the if there is a drink on a menu that is a variant of a margarita, it is the one that I will choose. So uh, pretty often, I would say. All right. Do you sit there and just you know critique people? Uh, well, if I'm going, yes, I do. That's what I, I, I do. Um, if I'm going to a bar that is is showcasing something, you know, um, you know, I, I want it to be done right. And and chances are, if I'm going to a bar and ordering off of a cocktail menu like that, chances are it is being done right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do critique it. But if I'm being honest, a lot of the time when I'm there, um, you know, the the person that if I, if I'm if they know who I am, then they're asking me what I think, and I'll give them an honest opinion on it. So. They they can you know oh, hopefully uh, better the drink. Oh, these poor bartenders! The honest opinion. What do you oh, think? No. Well, well, if I was yeah. behind the bar, <laughs> um, you can't really. No, I, just, I mean, can you really mess up a margarita? Yes. Oh gosh, yes. Oh uh, yes, absolutely. Really? You can mess up. You can mess up almost any single drink that you think of, you any single drink that you can think of. Uh, but people mess up margaritas all the time, and the easiest way to mess up a margarita is by using like uh, a crappy pasteurized uh, cheap sour mix easy way easiest way to mix up a, a, a margarita i remember a couple years ago Matt, maybe more than a couple years ago i was doing something in a liquor store that uh for a brand they asked me to come in and i was doing like a class for guests that were coming into the liquor store right it was like around the happy hour time and i was doing margaritas fresh from scratch with three different tequilas so that way you could see, like, just in fact, how much of an impact the different tequila uh, the, made to the same drink, right? And people would come up and rave how great the drinks were, and they couldn't believe how different they were from a Blanco tequila to an Añejo tequila to a Reposado tequila or, or another, one Blanco to another Blanco with just different brands, uh, but using the exact same template for every single thing. And then I'd watch them like, oh, my gosh, this is so great. You know, how do we do this? I said, well, you pick up this particular brand and you squeeze a fresh lime and you add, you know, uh, half of an ounce or three-quarter ounce of, you know, agave nectar simple syrup. And then, I, oh, my gosh, that's so easy. Yeah. And then I watch them go and pick up a $2 bottle of sour mix. And I'm like, well, you're not going to get the same thing I just made for you. And it's, it's so easy to mess up. And they add, like, double the sour mix and they do the tequila. It's awful. Um, awful. Have you ever gotten behind the bar yourself to make your own drink you have to think about it you've done it before no no i, I don't think i don't think i have okay um <laughs> i have i have told i have asked a bartender to make a drink a certain way for me um i have done that and then uh and then i immediately regretted my decision because i was like what am I doing? Like, I don't go to somebody else's job. I shouldn't go to somebody else's job and tell them how to do it. Like, what am I doing? I'm such an idiot. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I and, and the, bar, the bartender buddy of mine was, uh, he, he's a friend of mine. So oh, that's when fine. He, he just, oh, that's but fine. He just looked, he just, but he just looked at me, like, with a side eye, like, are you kidding right now? Like, I yeah, want you to do it to fine. someone. I want you to do it to someone you don't know. Yes. Do you know who I am? <laughs> I would never say that. I've been around people that say that stuff. And I would never say that. I, I, I've been embarrassed when I'm with people because I'm like, uh, don't loot me. Don't, don't, uh, I don't want to be in the same loop with that person when they, when they say that I, you know who I am, lying. All right. He's J.R. Stark at Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Spirits. J.R., as Nevada. always, we appreciate it. <laughs> Talk to you later, guys. Thank you, buddy. Uh, so, J.R. Starkus, um, man, do you know how badly I want to know 
or have him just jump behind the bar because the bartender doesn't make it right. Because the bartender stinks. Just like he's somewhere, and it, I don't know, it's taken a long time, and it's just like, all right, I'll make my yeah, own drink. I'll make, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> as soon as you asked if he's ever critiqued somebody while he's out somewhere, I knew the answer was going to be yes because <laughs> my brother's worked in the food industry for 20-something years. And that's all he does when he goes out? And I I don't like going out with him to eat because he critiques everything, everything from the moment we walk in the door to the moment we leave. Everything's critiqued. <laughs> Phenomenal. Absolutely great. I think I think I'm trying to think my siblings. I worked at a grocery store in high school. My sister worked at a Mexican restaurant, but she doesn't she doesn't didn't critique anybody. But she did that. This was the best. Instead of bringing me just a regular like glass or glass of Dr. Pepper, she would bring me the whole pitcher of Dr. Pepper and just put it on the table. Because when I was like 15, I'd just drink as much Dr. Pepper Dr. as I Pepper? could possibly drink when we would go when it was a free refill restaurant. Right. Just as much. So she'd just bring me the pitcher if she was there <laughs> and say, Yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't need to come back for a few minutes. <laughs> that was always good. All right, we got tickets to give away. If you want to go see Jeff Beck and Johnny Depp, they're playing tomorrow night at the Pearl at the Palms, and we got a pair of tickets for you right now. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. That's 702-364-1100. If you want to go see Jeff Beck and Johnny Depp, the caller number two right now at 702-364-1100. Jeff Beck, Johnny Depp tickets, caller number two right now. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Why is Dusty Baker citing Dave Roberts? Yes. He cites Dodgers. He has some, he has some history there. Why well, I don't want him citing sure Dave keeps... Roberts though. Come on, let's cite when good, it comes to pitchers. Let's cite a good manager for once. Well, oh well, when it comes to pitchers. <laughs> All right. Did you see the Nets let Kyrie Irving talk to the media this morning? Uh, yeah, he just did like twenty minutes ago. Um, he was asked point blank, "Are you anti-Semitic?" He did not answer the question. Uh, until a follow-up, the reporter said, because he was like, you guys keep asking me that. I don't know how that label got out there. And the reporter followed up and said, people just want to hear a yes or no to that question. And he said, I can't be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. And Drew McGarry, who we've had on the show, Drew McGarry watched the documentary that Kyrie Irving uh, tweeted out. And according to Drew McGarry, the basis of the documentary is centers around Jewish people are bad because Jewish people stole heritage from black people, right? That the true... That's what the documentary, the premise of the documentary. Right. The true uh, true Israelites are true Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, the true Hebrews are the black people of that area. Okay. And black people come from that. And so black people are the true Hebrews. And the one of the main themes of the documentary is that Jewish people are bad because they basically stole all this from black people. And that's why it's considered anti-Semitic. So when Kyrie Irving is asked, are you anti-Semitic? And his response is, I can't be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. He's basically reinforcing one of the main points of this documentary, that Jewish people are bad because they kicked black people out. And Kyrie's saying, well, I can't be anti-Semitic because I'm a Hebrew because I'm the true Hebrew. So Kyrie Irving and the Nets put out this statement with an almost apology of him saying, I understand how I harm the Jewish community. And then when he's actually pressed and asked about it, completely reverts, completely goes back to where he was before. 
doesn't go go back to your original point of he always wants to sound like the smartest guy in the room and he misses the point a lot? Yes. He does I don't think he understands why people are upset with him. It doesn't appear so. I don't think he under I don't think he gets it. I don't think he has any idea. He also apparently said this morning, I'm not the one that made the documentary. Okay. Like trying to defer blame trying to, defer to, blame to the, the people, people who made it. Who made it? And it's like, okay, well, if you watched it, agreed with it. And posted it. Yeah, posted it on Twitter. Posted it on Twitter or wherever he wherever he posted it. Instagram, it's, wherever. It sounds like you're just upset you didn't make it, that somebody else beat you to it, <laughs> right? Like, you, unbelievable. Just completely reverting back to where he was the last time he talked out loud. Tone deaf or you think he knew what he was talking about? Uh, yeah, tone deaf. I think, or, he's, tone deaf. I think does, he's tone deaf. Tone deaf or just doesn't understand why people are right, actually upset. Right. He's he's mad that he's getting the anti-Semitic label and has no idea why. And everybody else that's watched this is like, dude, what are you talking about? Like Pablo, again, Pablo Torre of ESPN watched it and tweeted out a screenshot. They used a fake Hitler quote in this documentary. Kyrie Irving saw, maybe, maybe he didn't watch it. Well, I, that's my question. How closely did he even watch this thing to tell you the truth? David Roth came on our show two days ago and said he doesn't think Kyrie actually watched it, which, right. what did he say? It's over three hours long? Yeah. I can absolutely believe that. 100% believe that. And Kyrie Irving just it refuses to back down, so he's going to say... What's the name of the documentary? I don't even remember, to be completely honest with you. I'd have to... He could have looked at the name, thought it was thought it was completely something different, and tweeted because he has no right. idea. And then gets asked about it and is and like, has no, doesn't no have answer real because he didn't for watch the thing. The Nets let him talk to the media. Uh, that's the biggest mistake the Nets made today was letting <laughs> Kyrie Irving say words out loud to people again. They shouldn't have done that.